We've done it again. Two diverse topics with some interesting insights from maintaining talent on the farm to peanuts. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. I thought last week when we discussed stock rotten harvest losses combined with the conversation about cyber risk that we couldn't get more diverse. Perhaps I was wrong. But then again, this goes to show you the wide-ranging subjects that involve agriculture in this country. We'll start this week discussing some strategies regarding ways farmers can find and keep productive employees on the farm. It's a hot topic, and Ben Potter from Farm Futures shares insights from a story he just completed on the topic. He came up with five strategies to employ on your farm, and they go beyond salary to deal with the kinds of expectations potential employees have these days. Then we'll turn our attention to a crop that's a favorite for many, peanuts. What farmers in the Midwest might not know is that the peanut market has two kinds of crops, and in the last couple of years there's been a significant change to part of that market. It's an exploration of customer demand and plant breeder response that I found fascinating, and John Hart from Southeast Farm Press tells that story. But first, let's turn our attention to employee strategies with Ben Potter. Ben, good to have you on Around Farm Progress. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Willie. How about you? I'm good. I'm hanging in. You know how that goes. And any time really with everybody being so busy. And speaking of that, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot of times is labor. Labor's become an issue across all kinds of industries. And you've been doing some work on on the labor side of agriculture and maybe some ways I can either get good people and keep good people, right? Right. This was the theme of our October cover story for Farm Futures. So it's uh, it's it's been really fresh on our minds lately over here. So you've got a story. It's kind of interesting. I wanted to dig into it a little bit is, uh, you know, one of the things we like to do for our readers is kind of break things down a little bit to make it um, more digestible in terms of tactics to do this. You've got some strategies, right? Five strategies to help me out here. Walk me through those. I do. And we for this story, we talked with uh, several really great farmers and a few other experts in the field, an HR expert and uh, some co- consultants to develop this information. And uh, well, I started to see a theme of these five things that everyone was kind of recommending. So the first one is simply, we're just calling this break the tie. And what uh, Indiana farmer Kevin Stoy says about breaking the tie is that any employer in your community is going to offer you some basic things, right? So it, he says the three things that most farmers offer is some sort of competitive salary, health insurance, and a basic retirement plan. And those are table stakes that if a farmer doesn't offer those things, it's it's really hard for them to compete for, for good labor. But barring those three things, so if you, if you bring those three things to the table, Kevin's point was, how are you gonna break the tie then? How are you gonna make yourself a little more lucrative than the local factory or the local mechanic or or any other number of places that your labor could come from. And so some of some of the examples are really uh, very, very widely because of your budget needs. So some farmers might offer a pickup truck for their employees. Some might just offer a cell phone plan. Uh, Some might offer overtime or bonus incentives when they meet certain objectives. So there's a you just kind of have to be creative on how you're going to break the tie on your operation. Well, yeah, that also seems more competitive from the standpoint of 
yes, we all talk about salary, but at the end of the day, um, a good salary and a not great job is not going to keep people. So if I've got a solid salary, competitive salary, and oh, by the way, I get this shiny pickup, may not be new, but it's a nice one, or I get a you know, the cell phone plan, that's pretty cool. A ways to tip the bet, tip the scales in your direction, I guess. Yeah, and that's a good segue, I think, to the next couple of points that the article makes uh, that really does focus, to your point about if you have a good salary, but the company culture's lousy, you'll just bang your head against the wall and nobody's happy. So the second point is kind of a way to focus on a specific area of company culture, which is flexibility. And this is something that when we talk to Liz Griffith, and she's a human relations consultant with Encore Consulting, that's a group that works with uh, farmers. She said, if time is money, why do so few people treat those two things equally? Hmm. And so her point was that if you have a really hardworking employee and he wants to go see his son play football on Friday night, but there's work to be done, are you willing to jump in the tractor and cover for them? As one example. Mm -hmm. Another point basically is that successful farms push themselves to do things differently. And so when you look at work schedules, maybe give every opportunity or give every employee a rotating day off or let every employee stay home on Sundays, even if it's affecting your bottom line a little bit. Or maybe you think about having an evening only crew that could work like a four to six hour shift in the evenings. Or uh, if there's office based employees, maybe you give them some work from home opportunities. So the point is really just to be flexible in how you're looking at a modern workforce. Well, on the other side of that, and you bring up that night crew, there are a lot of, of folks that are still employed, but wouldn't mind picking up four to six hours during the busy season for a couple, three weeks at night. Um, and, you know, cause they've got a job from eight, you know, seven to three thirty, for example, and they can show up at four thirty and run till 1030 and maybe run the combine or something like that. You get a couple of people like that. You've opened up your, your audience to a wider pool of potential employees too, right? Right. And I think people really crave a work-life balance more than ever. And even especially as millennials and Gen Z even are coming online, that they value that balance. They don't want to be at work for 60 or 70 hours a week. So if there's a way that you can cater or, or get creative uh, around some of those things, you're really going to find better labor and keep them happy. Hmm. That's interesting. What else did you learn? Well, so our third point was working on your company culture, cultivating your culture. Uh, people want to be a part of something positive and exciting. And if you have good culture, you're really going to foster that. And there's several ways to do it. Um, one big thing is just a simple company outing. And whether that means going to a baseball game or playing around a golf together, uh, if that's what your employees like to do. Uh, there's just a, a lot of ways to think about just spending time with them when you're not at work. I no, think that's, that's a good. Yeah, and sorry to interrupt. I think one of the issues that you bring up there, and this is kind of a different kind of speak, we're using a corporate speak on the farm because this idea of corporate culture, um, you know, my farm, I have a nice life. It's great. What's What, what do you mean by culture? But I think the other side of it is what's the chemistry 
you know, I've been on some farms. I was on a farm I followed for a year and the chemistry among the workers was fantastic. Everybody was, they were all young guys and um, diverse um, uh, from a standpoint of, of, of their backgrounds. And yet they all, they'd kind of grown up together and they liked working together and they liked doing the work together. And, and they all, you could tell they also went fishing together. They also went hunting together. And I think fostering that could be very powerful in terms of, yeah, I kind of like working there. It's not always perfect, but we do have a lot of fun. Yeah. And you can't make people like each other, of course, but I think there are (laughs) just showing a little bit of effort there would go a long way. And another thing about culture is just being involved in your community uh, maybe sponsor your local Little League team, for example. Um, post pictures on Facebook of, of things that are happening on the farm. Show that you're a real person. And that's not just good for employees. It's just good for fostering good land uh, landlord relations and all kinds of things. So uh, don't, <laughs> uh, don't be a stranger to your community, I guess, is my point there. One well, and, and yeah, and don't be a stranger to your employees. You know, you talked about the culture and the work-life culture there too. That goes back to what's the framework? What are your standard operating procedures? How do you handle things? Provide that baseline confidence that you know what you're doing when somebody comes to work for you. That if there's an issue, the issue can be worked out because there's a manual or a process. You know, all that works to play in your favor. Right, and I, this again, segues very well to the next point, uh, which is go the extra mile. We really took to heart this point from Kentucky farmer, Doug Langley, Mm -hmm. who decided to learn Spanish to better communicate with some of his H-2A labor from Mexico. And here's the point he made. He says, I see it as me adapting to them. It's about empathy. How would you like to go to work every day and not be able to understand your boss? I wanted to be able to carry a conversation and communication is key with any employee. And we just thought this was fantastic. Then Langley actually took it a step further. He has another batch of workers from South Africa. Now, South Africans typically speak very good English, but they also Mm -hmm. speak Afrikaans. And he saw that as another opportunity to connect. So he's now... This guy is learning Afrikaans to uh, to better communicate with with those employees. Now, the the ironic thing or the interesting thing is he says it's actually hard. It's not more inherently. uh, It's not inherently more difficult to learn Afrikaans than it is Spanish. But he says the process has been super slow because uh, every time anyone gets frustrated, they can just talk to each other in English. So there's no real pressure to to pick it up really quickly. That's interesting, but I've also been told, despite what he says, that Afrikaans is a lot harder to learn. It's sort of a cross <laughs> between, I don't know what, and Dutch. I mean, that's part of it. It's it's evolved in Africa, but it started as Dutch. So that's interesting because, but yeah, languages, but the Spanish, and you know, you do get dairy operators in out in California that speak fluent Spanish. And it's a great idea for your H-2A workers. And and why wouldn't you want to know what they're thinking and saying? And like you say, it kind of says, hey, you care about me. So I will work harder for you. So that's always important. It is. I, You know, this is my personal argument, but I think we struggle as a society with being empathetic to each other. And I just, it really was heartwarming to see an example like this where this guy really does care about his labor uh, to the point that he's willing to be 
try and become bi or trilingual at, at some point if, if he gets good enough at, at speaking Spanish and Afrikaans. Is he using Babel? What's he using to learn all this stuff? That's what I, I want to know. Said, okay. He says, I, I said, what are you uh, taking a class or something? He goes, no, I just learn one word at a time. He said, I try to w- learn at least one word every day, but he's been doing that for uh, five or six years now for, for his Spanish speaking employees. So if you extrapolate one word a day times 365 times five, yeah. you know, he's got a pretty decent vocabulary by this point. But the neat thing about that is when he's hearing them talk, he he's getting a sense of the what's going on too, even just in casual interaction, which is something that could be very valuable. But the the last point is just about being transparent. And we looked at a group in Southwest Missouri called Jack Stack, and they you may have heard of this. They came out this guy came out with a book called The Great Game of Business, and he came out with that book after he turned around. Uh, a factory that, that he was running in Southwest Missouri. And he sort of famously uh, taught all of his employees how to read the company's profit and loss statements. And so there's kind of a push for other businesses to try this out. And it's really, it's probably not for everyone, but it, it was just a really interesting example. You probably, you might not have to share balance sheets with your employees, for example, but if you can sort of Help them understand where the business is. Uh, be transparent in your communications. If something's going, if things are going really well, uh, be able to express that. And if there's problem areas, be be willing to express that too. And then just kind of puts everyone on the same page. And again, I, I think a lot of this is just about burning calories on your employees, making them know that you care about them, you care about your business, and that you want everyone to succeed. That would be the hard one. Um, sharing, opening the books, cracking open the books is a real challenge for a lot of folks. It would be for most people. It's like, well, what's in your checkbook, Ben? But, yeah. uh, but I mean, but I think that it, there's a way to do that without spilling all the beans too. Noting that uh, X amount of the crop was sold above market value. You know what I mean? This is why, or we had, we had a problem. We uh, the last four loads of cattle we lost money on, and you need to know that that happened because some of that stuff isn't a, a, a gripe or a complaint. You're right. Transparency is a good deal. It's like because then it gets into why aren't we getting a raise? Well, it's because corn's been at three fifty local cash price for five years, and so people try to need to understand how that works. Absolutely. So I think that's an interesting idea. I think that would be a Probably one of the hardest of the five points, but maybe the point that a person should do a little soul searching on. Absolutely. For sure. It, it would. As one of my sources told me, if you know everything that I know, then you don't have to trust me. It's sort of meaning if you know everything that I know, then you hopefully you're coming to the same conclusions about what our goals are and, and what we need to get done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think before you go to that level of transparency, you're going to have to have a lot of other ducks in a row too so that it doesn't look like it does look like you know what you're doing as a manager because you know you don't always have great years but still i see some real value in that you're right i know everything i don't have to trust you (laughs) that's an interesting way to look at it yeah sure yeah i like that ben thanks for doing the story and thanks for sharing some of your conclusions this has been great yeah great talking with you willie all right well thanks for joining me on around farm progress have a great day 
Thanks to Ben Potter for the work he did talking to a wide range of sources to produce this story and for sharing those insights with us here. Labor has long been an issue in agriculture, and as he shared, it's not getting any easier. But his strategies could help. Of course, the key is that while salary isn't everything, no one wants to work for peanuts. And speaking of peanuts, we turn our attention to the east where John Hart from Southeast Farm Press offers us some insights to interesting market changes in the peanut business. Part of that industry had to solve a customer challenge through plant breeding. It's a fascinating story. John Hart, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Well, thank you, Willie. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're talking about a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and that's peanuts, because I do love a good peanut. But, you know, we, talk, we when we talk about peanuts, I want to clarify something before we get too deep into this, because we're going to talk about one kind of peanut, which is basically in your neck of the woods in uh, North Carolina and Virginia, and that's the Virginia peanut. And we have peanuts in Georgia. So before we get any farther in the peanut business, can you tell me the difference? Yeah, that's a good question. Basically, the uh, Virginia-type peanuts are the larger peanuts. That's the ones that you buy at baseball games. And that's the ones that are used like in M&Ms and Snickers bars. I guess they also call it the cocktail peanut. And then the runner peanut is a little smaller peanut, and that's mainly used for peanut butter. So that's the, that's the main difference. You know, peanut, runners are used for peanut butter, and Virginia is used as, as it's a peanut you'd eat on its own. Uh, one of my favorite places to eat is Five Guys hamburgers, and they always have peanuts in the place, and they're always Virginia peanuts. So I know exactly. there's a difference. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, that's that's actually that's a big market for for Virginia type peanuts. It's, it's Five Guys. Yep. So, but there's an issue going on. So we're going to let the runner peanuts be peanut butter, but we're going to talk about Virginia peanuts today. And I think there's something interesting, even for the soybean farmer in the Midwest, about what's going on in the cocktail or Virginia peanut market. They're looking for a different kind of peanut, a modification to the peanut. And we're not talking GMO. We're talking about breeding modification. What is that? We were talking about that before. What is that? Basically, what they're demanding is the high oleic trait, you know, high oleic chemistry. And the reason they want that is to improve the shelf life of the peanuts, to make them last longer so they won't go rancid as long. So the market has demanded that, particularly, for the again, for the baseball park peanuts and for M&M Mars is demanding it for their products. Basically, any all the companies that use Virginia peanuts want the high oleic trait. So a few years back, the breeders back-crossed and found the trait in wild species lines, found the high oleic trait, and now all the varieties that the farmers grow are high oleic, high oleic peanuts, and that's been for the past couple of years now. So basically, if a farmer wants to sell Virginia-type peanut to the market, it has to be high oleic. That's a big turnaround. I mean, we're working on high oleic soybeans, which that's a different kind of market. Um, it, it's it's driven more as a commodity with a premium market, but it but those buyers aren't demanding it. Or in other words, if I want to grow Virginia peanuts, I can't even sell them if they're not high oleic, right? Exactly right. And this is a, a fairly new phenomenon, you might say. Just in the past couple of years, it's it's, it's switched to all high oleic. Because in the past, the top yielding variety was a variety called Bailey. And it was not high oleic, but back in 2013, a new line came out called Bailey 2, and now that's that's the most popular variety. And basically, Bailey 2 is a high oleic version of Bailey. And the good news for farmers is it's not only high oleic, but it also yields better. 
than Bailey. And like Bailey, it's very disease resistant. So, so farmers like it. So it's a win-win situation for the shellers and for the farmers. Hmm. That's interesting because when you look at that market, you know, you created it. Obviously, this is near and dear to my heart because who doesn't like a bag of M&Ms every once in a while? Peanut, right. of course, but but longer shelf life. But I think it's interesting that that, well, first of all, people need to understand peanuts are not in a private uh, private or corporate profit uh, profit driven peanut development program. They're all at NC State. This is all pri- uh, public development, right? Exactly. Yeah, there's a, a, a peanut breeder named Jeff Dunn who works for NC State, and he actually works in cooperation with a, a scientist named Maria Bolota at Virginia Tech, and also in cooperation for the, the peanut specialist in South Carolina, uh, Dan Anko, and they kind of work together. But basically, it's the, the breeder is, is Jeff Dunn and his team at NC State. So it's, so all the varieties for the past, boy, past 50 years at least, if not longer, have all been developed by NC State, all the Virginia-type peanut varieties, because it is such a small niche. It's yeah. different than corn, different than soybeans. There's not that – there's only you know, about two, 2 million acres of peanut in the country, so it's not a, not a huge crop like corn and soybeans. Well, when you say 2 million acres in the country, that includes runners, doesn't it? Exactly right, yeah. So it, it is a very small market. Yeah, small market, but but important and valuable. I think it's just interesting that the private sector buyer was able to turn the entire industry on a dime and say, I'm not buying any peanuts till you get high lake. And there, the good news is NC State found it. Exactly right. And they're obviously they're they're all on board with it because they knew they needed the market. Yeah. So it just it it, it proves how the system works. Absolutely. Well, and the Bailey peanut is a good phenotype. I mean, it obviously is a good performer, good yielder, good size peanut. You know performs well. So just having that phenotype with the high lake added had to be a nice boon for Dunn and his crew. So exactly right. Great. Well this is interesting news. I mean we always we we talk about peanuts. This is a product. One of the issues about food crops versus commodity crops is that it's it's a small number of acres with a large impact on those that raise them. I mean I know in the runner land uh Skippy and Jiff have a lot of control and Peter exactly. Pan over what's actually planted and what's sold. So it's very interesting how the peanut market is very closely tied to the buyer. It is, and it's a small, a very small industry, all things considered. So they all they work well together. Yeah. Talk to me for a minute about PVQE. What is it that you can tell me what that stands for? <laughs> sure. Yeah, that, that actually, that was one that I just recently attended the PVQE tour on the uh, on a farm in North Carolina and basically it's the peanut variety quality and evaluation program and that's like one of the final steps that the breeding program goes through to evaluate peanuts before they release a new variety so it's like the final step and it's done on the farm to give you know a real real world on farm analysis of how the how the peanuts perform on a farm so that's that's what that's been going on for some time now and again they, they were there was a tour that I attended where they where you get to see the new varieties in the field and how they work. And, and you get to see the experimental lines. Many of them won't make it, but you get to see how they perform in the field. So it's very interesting. It is interesting. So we have Bailey too, the new, the newer hyolaic version of Bailey. Is there another variety coming out? Is there something that the industry is really looking toward? Yeah, there's one he's, that, that Jeff Dunn mentioned called NC20, which is a, a later season peanut variety. And this, it's supposed to be released. It might be a while, but they're working on it. And the goal of that is it's a it's a high oleic, good yielder, 
good disease resistance, but it's big plus is it can be harvested later than, than the Bailey and the other varieties. And that's the big demand too, is the farmers kind of want to stretch out their harvest a little longer. So if they, if they had this, they could have a later maturing peanut variety because the farmers are, are asking for that. So that's, so they're working on that as well. So that's one exciting potential variety that will be out soon. That's interesting because you look agronomically, we're always, you know, um, a, a lot of times corn farmers and soybean farmers might do two different groups so they can stretch their harvest out to manage their equipment. Exactly. Um, so that's part of this, right? Because when you do peanuts, when it's time to harvest peanuts, there's a lot of work going on. But if I can stretch that harvest out, right, and and maybe expand my marketing, because I'm sure M&M Mars doesn't want to take all the peanuts when they come in. Does that help? Exactly right. Yeah. And that's that's the problem. That's the issue with peanuts is you're really under the gun once they're mature and ready. And it you have to really be concentrated on the work. So that's why they would hope to expand it out a little bit. And it also, as you know, peanuts are a rotational crop of cotton so they can yep. better expand their cotton harvest and their peanut harvest. So it just makes for a, a longer harvest window. Great. So we're looking at later harvest and continuing in the high oleic trend. That's fantastic. So we learned something about peanuts today, John, and I know that even my corn and soybean listeners, uh, hopefully, will find it interesting that high oleic oil is a big deal. That high oleic trait adds shelf life, and that means money to M&M Mars and including all those guys, those people at Five Guys. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, so it's a good thing. All right. Well, John, thanks for the update on the peanut market. Very interesting, and we always enjoy some of these crops that we don't always talk about. Thank you for your time, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Willie. You may never think about peanuts the same way again. Thanks to John Hart for his insight on the changes to this market and how the industry responded to a customer demand. Farmers in the Midwest know something about high oleic crops with rising demand for more soybeans with that trait too. And we thank Ben Potter for those strategies that may help farmers find and retain good employees. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.